0: Um, if you have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 4, you can keep it, keep it open there. That's where our sermon today will be about. Um, in the passage you just read, it's about the parables of the kingdom. And I like to begin my, my sermon with the concept of familiarity breeds contempt. Are you familiar with that, that, that saying? It's basically about a uh, thing that is something you're so used to that you start just seeing the negatives. And for me, that was about living day to day in this country as a Malaysian. And you see, I'm sure this, I'm not alone in this. As a non-Muslim, as a non-Malay, sometimes, you know, uh, things happen in the news and you'll be like, nothing ever changes. Right? And, and, and we get so disillusioned, we get so, um, you know, disappointed that we we'll say stuff like, I could live a better life as a non-citizen in another country than as a citizen in my own country we stay stuff like that I'm sure I'm not the only one. That's why, well this is a screenshot of my Facebook, I was so shocked when I came across this Japanese guy saying, Japanese, a lot of Japanese people want to live in Malaysia. I'm like, what? Shouldn't it be the other way around like, you know, all my friends who go to Japan, I'm like, it's so clean, they line up, we, you know? <laughs> so I was like, why would the Japanese want to come to Malaysia? The land of no lining up and rubbish everywhere, right? <laughs> you find it funny, Kate. You can save the title and search YouTube later, all right? If you play it now, we all hear it, so don't. Save it for later. So you see, what shocked me so much is because Malaysia had become something so familiar to me, and I believe to most of us, that we are only beginning to see, to not see the point in staying sometimes in extreme times. And the other options were more appealing. You see, what happened was that I needed to pay attention to the good things of our country. Because until I was able to do that, until I was to pay attention to the good things, the, the redeeming qualities of our country, and he names quite a lot in his video, I'm not a, I was not able to participate as a functional citizen of this country. I will only be, you know, if the, if the Grab driver is not a Chinese or a Malay, I will be, you know, confrontational, in, 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 the, in the market, in the food places, wherever we are, I would not be a good Malaysian. And I need to remind myself, I need to pay attention to the good things of our country, such as the food, and such as our fellow Malaysians and the difference of culture when we're being civil. And usually we're civil when we're talking about food, right? And we're also united about food, like when Singapore tries to claim our chendo. But yeah, jokes aside, I need to pay attention to the good things so that I can participate rightly in this country. And when it comes to us and God's country, God's kingdom, are we at danger of being overly familiar with the things of God's kingdom? That week in, week out, um, for those of you who've been in SMAC for a while, you get good preaching every week. But could it be so familiar to the point that we stop listening? That we stop hearing it for ourselves to the point where we can, you know, try to guess when the preacher will, okay, this is when the preacher tells me I need Jesus. Okay, and then we mentally check out. We laugh, some of us, because we do that. But the thing, if, if, we, if we do that, we miss out in participating in what, is God, what God is doing today, what God is doing now, what God is doing for you. And if that is us, possibly, Mark today in this passage wants to tell us, pay attention wake up, because you will see in Mark, as we have been going through Mark, there are two types of people. There are those that don't want anything to do with the message, they reject the message, and there are those that are hearing and receiving the message. There's only two, there's no in between. So for us as believers, true believers, pay attention and participate in the kingdom. So let's turn to our passage today in Mark chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. And Mark opens this um, setting of parables with this. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. This reminds us of what we covered last week in chapter three, verses seven to ten, where we read that there was such a great crowd, people just wanting to be healed by Jesus, people wanting to just touch him to get his power, that he was going to get crushed. So he was in a boat on the sea, and this we get a sense that this is a common feature of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. You see, uh, before we get into the text, just want to set it up that Mark, we should not assume that these 34 verses are verbatim, are one sermon that at one go Jesus laid out all these parables, or this is representative of just one occasion, right? But rather Mark intentionally picked parables that Jesus frequently said along his ministry and put them together put them here for a reason, for a purpose, and if he did that intentionally, I think it behooves us to listen and pay attention. So before we go into it, the whole structure of today is all parables, okay? And there are two ways of understanding parables, all right? Um, You may not be familiar with these two words, allegory and analogy. So what are they? Um, Maybe it's best I explain it by uh, the extreme example of what we shouldn't do. So a very common example of allegory uh, is by St. Augustine, unfortunately. And he does this, some find it very funny, but I don't know. Let's see. So he, he, uh, St. Augustine comes to the parable of the Good Samaritan and he says, "...the wounded man is Adam." The robbers are the devils and the demons. As the Samaritan binds his wounds, it's the restraint of sin. As he used oil and wine, it's the comfort of hope and encouragement to work. The Samaritan's animal is the incarnation of Christ. The inn is the church. Paul is the innkeeper. The two denarius, uh, the Samaritan pays are the two great commandments of love. Now, obviously, we shouldn't be doing that, all right? But this is allegory run amok. That's what allegory is, is that in this one story, many elements tell many different truths. So that's why I chose that symbol. Like one thing, many, many points in one one story. So that's one extreme. And the other extreme was taken by this biblical scholar uh, in Germany in the late 1800s, who say that um, Jesus' parables were analogies. So what's an analogy? An analogy is um, a phrase to illustrate one simple truth. Just one point. That's it. And this scholar said that any allegorical elements, like say that if any um, parables of Jesus had multiple meanings, all those were just add ons. They were done by someone else, not Jesus. Now, I want to be clear that both these extremes are extremes, and we should. And nowadays, biblical scholarship has put us right in the middle. But we need to be aware of these two methods of explaining because both these types of parables exist in today's passage. Okay? And I'll point it out as we go along, don't worry. But what's helpful for us, and how can we be sure? Because if we do what St. Augustine did, the danger is that we can take any parable of Jesus and take it to mean whatever we want. And that's definitely what we don't want to do when it comes to the Bible. We want to let God speak for Himself. So how can we understand parables and how can we be careful about allegory? Two things here. The first is this. Parables must be understood in the context of Jesus' ministry as He was saying those parables. So Jesus was pr- pronouncing the kingdom of God and He was calling, uh, telling people, describing this new nature of this kingdom and he's calling people to respond to this kingdom. And number two is that any allegorical elements, that means beyond the first main point of this parable, if it's to make another point or any other points, is to be in the context of Jesus' ministry. Now, a simpler way is just this. The surest way to know if a parable is an allegory or analogy is that Jesus explains it. Cool? Cool? Right? So we will see both examples. So we will see um, in the first parable. But before we get there, I also want to talk about um, the idea of using parables. And here we see it in verses 11 to 12. And here, Mark um, quotes Jesus to say that, He said to them, To you have been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything's in parables, so that they may see and not perceive, hear and not understand, lest they should be forgiven. Now here we come to a very serious um, concept that the reason Jesus used parables is to hide truths of the kingdom from those that are dying or those that have rejected him, but to those who receive will get more. And we'll see this clearer uh, later on. But I want to explain the word secret. Some, some people have taken it wrongly to mean that secret means mysterious and therefore we need to dive deeper in these hidden meanings. And that's actually what led to uh, the... the exaggerated allegory of the early church. You see, secret should be understood as not as something strange or mysterious for us, but as something that was not revealed previously. But now, Jesus is revealing it. So specifically, it's about God's kingdom entering human history in a visible way through Jesus Christ. And obviously, we are way after that as well. Right? So it's not a secret for us. It's clearly revealed in the Bible. Now, the next issue that about, this, about these two verses is that some, and rightfully so, have an issue that, you mean Jesus is purposely confusing people who, you know, to, to not understand and not be forgiven? And that's the most natural reading if you're being honest. I mean, scholars try to be creative about it. I won't go into it. There's a ton of stuff in there. But at the end of the day, we have to face the facts that when we read it, it's so that they will see and not perceive, hear and not understand. And he's quoting Isaiah chapter 6. But what's the context of Isaiah chapter 6 that we just read? Was that in Isaiah chapter 5, God is declaring that His people have thoroughly rejected Him. That they were a good vineyard. You can look at Isaiah chapter 5 later if you want. But, and, and God was expecting fruit from this vineyard, faithfulness. And His people were not giving it to Him. They rejected Him. And therefore, Isaiah was to preach and that their hearts would be hardened. And we see the same parallel that Mark put this saying here Because what happened in chapter 3 of Mark, last week what we covered, was that the Pharisees were accusing Jesus' mighty works of the Holy Spirit as from the prince of demons. That they were blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. They were so uh, rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit that they were beyond ability to be be saved. They they could not perceive anymore the truths of God. And that's what he means. And the fact that when Jesus says, he who has ears, let them hear, it's, it's a spiritual Uh, hearing that we're talking about. That to hear God's message requires attention and it requires spiritual discernment. So believers are called to pay attention in order to participate in God's kingdom. So let us not be in danger of being being hardened in this way. So let's go on to today's parable in verse 3. Now what I'm going to do in this parable, because there's the parable and then there's some verses and then Jesus' interpretation. To make it simpler, I'm just going to take the parable and the Jesus' explanation and put it together at each point so it's simpler for us. Don't you think so? So, um, so interesting why in verse 3, you see, listen, behold. The ESV took care to try to, to translate the awkwardness of Mark's language here because it says, listen and see. Look and see. Behold, a man went to sow that Mark was intentionally wanting to call to attention. So for true believers, we need to pay attention to what Mark wants to say. And that in, later on in verse 13, when Jesus tells his disciples, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? It's to indicate that this parable of the sower is a parable of parables. That it's about not just this story of seeds and soils, but it's about how we receive all other parables as well, how we receive all the messages of God's kingdom as well. So having that in mind, let us go in the parable. So we have a sower who sows seed, which is the word of God. Uh, Of course, the sower is God, is Jesus himself as he sows God's message. And we see that there's uh, responses of the soil to that message. The first is hard soil. And if I were to use one word to help us remember this, it's rejection. Okay? And how does this look like? In Jesus' context, of course, it was the Pharisees and the scribes. But in today, how is this seen today? Is whenever we look at God's Word and say, that's not for me, or that doesn't apply to me, and we just say, okay, not my categories, check, and we shove it off. And God's Word does not bear take any root in us. The second thing I want to say about this is that in verse 15, Jesus explains that when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. The presence of Satan and his demons here should remind us that whenever the word of God is preached, there is a spiritual war that is going on. That even as we hear now, there's a spiritual war going on that Satan, I believe, is still very much as active as he was in Jesus' time. And that he's still doing so to people who reject the message and he'll take it away. So obviously, we, won't, we do not want to be guilty of being this soil. But what about the next few? The next one is the rocky soil. Other seed fell on rocky soil where it did not have much soil, immediately it sprang up since it had no depth. When the sun rose, it was scorched and it had no root, it withered away. One word I want to use to describe this soil is superficiality, being superficial. You see, the crowds were looking to Jesus for miracles, for signs, for healings, for exorcisms, to eat free bread. But when Jesus called them, that you must take up the cross, you must commit that there's a price to be paid. Oh, that's when you saw that you see them exit. Then there are two factors to this failure: one internal, one external, and this is explained in verses 16 and 17. The internal one is seen in verse 17. Um, reading verse 16 for context, they are the ones who receive the word, immediately they receive it with joy. Wow, awesome. Yes, I'll believe in Jesus Christ. Verse 17, and they have no root in themselves. What does this mean? It means that they had inadequate roots to draw moisture. Okay? It grew, there was some sign of growth, but there was no um, way to tap into moisture that the, that the rock prevented the roots from growing. And externally what happened, um, the sun came up, which is tribulation or persecution that arises on account of the word, immediately it fell away. So externally what could that mean? Trouble, because of the word, because of allegiance to Jesus Christ, because of hard life circumstances. And I want to encourage us today to not be in danger of being this soil, because superficial, how, does, how does it look like to be superficial in church? It means that we don't allow anyone to truly know who we are. We don't allow anyone to know our weaknesses and our struggles. We put, if you will, a layer of rock so that no roots can penetrate through. Because guess what? If we allow people to come in, we get hurt. And I understand that, and I sympathise with that. But the truth is, the only way to not get hurt is to lock your heart in a box. And eventually, you won't get hurt, but that heart will grow hard and be as hard as a rock. That's from C.S. Lewis, not from me. But that's the thing. Even in our relationship with God and our relationship with God's people, do we pursue realness, depth, instead of superficiality? If we're just content with showing up at church and just smiling at each other when we say the peace and say, hi, hi, hi. Uh, Now we have got coronavirus, we don't shake hands, right? We just say hi, let me just walk away and, and not be known it's so tragic it's so tragic because you may have some semblance of growth but there's no real power in it that you're missing out that there's moisture to be had but you just can't have it because you didn't let it in because only depth can sustain when th- when times get hard and anyone who's lived long enough can will know that life will get hard do we have roots in the truth of god's word the next soil is the tawny soil. Seeds that fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. The word I will use here would be distracted. To describe this soil, distracted. What do I mean? You see, um, the, the, the images of thorns are, are used in the Bible as well, in Isaiah chapter 5, uh, verse 6, and Isaiah chapter 7, verse 24. It speaks of agricultural neglect. Uh, a farmer who neglects his field, then you get weeds that come up, Right? And as, how does this look like for us? If we neglect to pay attention to God's Word, guess what? Weeds come up. Weeds come up that distract us. And what are we distracted by? We're distracted by living for the here and now. Living for this world alone. And here in verse 19, what are the thorns? The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things enter in and choke the Word. They are deceitful because riches give, and and all these other things, give an illusion of security, an illusion of happiness, but have no eternal value. 1 John 2.17 says, the world and its desires will pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Uh, Let me try to explain this with a, a short story, an analogy if you will. It's fictional, but bear with me. So there was this guy, he, he sat on an economy seat on a, maybe a, a long-haul flight, a five, six-hour flight to somewhere, right? And he sat, and next to him, in the economy seat next to him, there was this guy who was in a bathrobe, really comfortable, and he had a flat screen in front of him that no other seats had, and he had custom seat holsters with drink holders, and he had bathroom slippers on, and he obviously spent a lot of money to deck out that seat, Right? And, and so curious, this man asking, um, "You do realize that we're gonna get off this plane when the plane lands, right? You see, the funny—we we, we think that it's a, like no one in their right mind would do this—and you're right. No one in their right mind should spend a large amount of money to deck out a plane seat, especially if it's Asia, right? <laughs> right? Uh, because at the end of the day, it's not about sitting in the plane seat; it's about flying to where you're going to." and to prepare yourself for life there, or what you're going to face after that. But as much as we laugh at this man, how much do we get distracted by the cares of this world? I'm not saying that riches and careers are bad things, but when they take us off our eyes off the real thing that matters, things that have eternal weight, eternal salvation, our eternal salvation, then that's when it becomes a distraction. More about this later. But let's move on to the good soil. Verse 8. And of course, this is the happy ending, right? The good soil produced grain. It grew up an increasingly an increasing yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And the word that I want to describe this good soil is intimacy. Why? Bear with me. You see, um, it's prepared soil. This good soil was, was plowed. The rocks were removed. It was weeded. The thorns were removed as well. It was plucked. Right, and that so that that's how the seed was allowed to be grown. And the same seed that was sown by Jesus is the same seed that we're talking about today. Because what message did Jesus preach? In Mark chapter one verse fifteen, repent and believe the gospel. And it's the same same message that the church proclaims today. And how shall we respond to this message of the gospel? Now, most of us in church today, we're sitting here, right? We are, we are obviously past the first level, right? We didn't outrightly reject Jesus. not, we won't be sitting here. Okay, but if, you're, if, you're, if that's you and you're sitting here, we'd love to chat, right? Uh, but most of us, actually, if there's any danger of not being the good soil, it will be the rocky soil or the thorny soil, and I'll deal with them separately. So if it's superficial, then we only give God lip service, but... But don't be surprised if we complain that there's no real power of God in our work, in work, at work in our lives today. So go deep in, in, into the truth of God. But if we just let it be there, it's, there's still a rock there because we have not taken God's truth deep into our hearts. How do we see that is we when we start loving God's people the way He loves each other. About distractedness. Like I said, chasing career or fulfilling career is not a bad thing. Looking for financial security is not a bad thing. But all these things are just temporal. Especially when it comes to career. Most of us here who are working, when you leave, they're not going to put your name beside the building. Your office seat is not going to have like a a picture of your head or your face on it and say, here sat Tim. No, they're going to replace you before you even know it, right, your place will be waiting to take it, right, it's only temporal, it doesn't last, and so how, how distractions of good things can help, so I'm going to share from my own life, um, most of you may not know, my daughter is born deaf, and she needed something called a cochlear implant, it was, there were many hurdles uh, to get us to that one point, uh, many But one one particular thing was that she needed an operation for the cochlear implant. And one requirement for a 10-month-old baby was that she she should be healthy and clean health for two weeks prior to the operation. We were stressed up. Right, me and my wife. So uh, I have an older son. When there was an outbreak of hand, foot, mouth, we were quarantining both of them, my mom's place, my place. It was stressful to say the least. And um, because we were so distracted, we were not able to enjoy the time that we spent with our daughter. We are not, enjo- not able to enjoy the time that we spent with each other. It was stressful. And sometimes life throws us things that, are dis- that would prevent us from getting to real joy. I- I'd, like to la- I'd like to add that by God's grace, uh, she managed to have her operation. Uh, it- that delay helped to serve some- a-, a greater purpose than we could ever have planned for. But that's more on that. That's another story for another day. The thing is about being distracted, missing out on the real thing, on our relationships with our loved ones, our relationships in church, and our relationship ultimately with God. Because ultimately our relationship with God is vital. Don't miss this, our relationship with God is not just the goal. Our relationship with God is what sustains this Christian life. When this parable is talking about roots, it's roots into this relationship that taps into this life. And as much as you don't have any relationship with God, you are in danger of not having any roots at all because our love shapes who we are and how we live. So how do we then nurture this love? Simple, by just reminding us of the very first things. How do you make yourself love someone? right? Long-time married couples, how do you keep the fire alive? It's by reminding each other of what caused you all to fall in love in the first place. For, for us and Christ and God, it's about looking, going back to the cross. Going back to realize that God's love for us is re- being revealed on the cross. That at the foot of the cross, we see that we didn't, is, we, we, we should not, that was us but that Jesus took our place to die for us, right? And that we are ushered into a loving relationship with God. Now, I like to to do this, um, I've been doing this for a while now. How much does God the Father love God the Son? Is there anything that God the Father will withhold from God? Any any honour, any glory that God the Father, any love that God the Father will withhold from God the Son? And the obvious answer is no, there's nothing. But here's the kicker. Christians call God Father not because He's generically our Father of, because He created us, but we can call God Father in our prayers because Jesus called God Father. That as much as we are in Christ, what the relationship that God bestows upon us is the relationship that He had with Jesus. That He would outpour that honour and glory upon unworthy vessels like us. And as much as we go back to those fundamentals of how much God loved us, as much as He had no reason to, we stir our hearts to love Him back. And I pray that if this is your first time hearing it, that you will not be that heart sore, that you receive God's love, that Satan will not take away this word from your heart. And if we're in danger of being superficial with God or distracted, help us to once again come to the cross and see His love for us. Help us to go to the empty tomb and see the power of His resurrected life that we can claim, that we can have if we believe in Him and are found in Him. So that's the parable of the sower. We move on to further kingdom sayings and parables. So here Mark continues Jesus' teaching in two groups of sayings and parables and this will be point three in your outline if you're following it there. There are two sayings. The first two are sayings and the next two are parables. Okay? So if, if the parable of the sower was an example of allegory, that means one story had multiple points as we outlined, The next few are examples of analogies. Each story, one point. That's it. So it should be quite fast, right? Okay, so let's go to the first one. The lamp, verse 21 to 23. Is a lamp brought to be put under the basket or under a bed? And obviously the answer is no. You don't hide a lamp. Unless you want to burn your bed, maybe. Right? So nothing is hidden except to be revealed, to be made manifest. Nothing is secret except to come to light. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Now here's the point of Mark. The kingdom of God is hidden for now. But one day it will be revealed. Now scholars have debated does he mean when the disciples received the Holy Spirit and the church grew? Possible. But I'd like to apply it for us today to think rightly of this this parable is that the kingdom of God there's a certain element in which the kingdom of God is still hidden. Why? Very simply because the world does not acknowledge God as their rightful king. We are still in a world that does not acknowledge the kingdom of God. It's still hidden. They do not see that truth yet. But one day it will be revealed. And therefore, Mark uses in verse 23, if anyone has ears, let him hear. I said just now that if anyone has ears, it's not about physical ears, but it's about spiritual ears, spiritual discernment. And one day, we'll be vindicated. So on that day, can you imagine, on that day, how will you fare? Will it be seen that the the, the toil of your years was spent accumulating a career, accumulating financial security, accumulating stuff? Or will it be revealed that you have given for the work of the gospel, for His kingdom, and that those things are of eternal value? That is the parable of the lamp. The kingdom is hidden, but it will one day be revealed. The next saying is of a measure. um, A balancer, a balanced scale, all right? In verse 24 to 25, pay attention, again, Mark uses the same same words, to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured against you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given. The one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, this parable is is illustrating the marketplace, all right? Uh, Grain merchants who would weigh grain, and it's a common saying that, if you use good scales, if you're honest, if, you're, if you have integrity, people will come back. That means you have more. But if you cheat, you get what's coming to you, all right? That people will no longer buy from you because it's found out that you're a cheat, Right. But how should we understand this parable in light of what Mark is saying is just this. Those who take the time and the energy, those who pay attention, those who put their faith in God's kingdom will get a greater understanding, a greater experience of God's kingdom, of power, of relationship with God than they originally put in. But those that don't, okay, even if they receive any revelation, if they reject it, even what they had will be taken away. That they'll be further hardened in their rejection. And that, please note that this is the divine passive means it will be given, it will be taken, and of course the one who's doing the giving and taking is God. And then we come now to then, so that's what, that was about our response. Now we come to the kingdom in these two short parables in verse 26 uh, and 30. Verse 26, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows. He know not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. When the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle because the harvest has come. So the secretly growing seed is the, it's only mentioned in Mark. all right? But what's it about? We see a strange phenomenon that the seed grows without human intervention or understanding. Now, this is true, right? We don't actually speak to the cells to make them grow. But of course, if anyone who has tried making a garden in your home would know that there is human intervention involved, right? You need to fertilize it. and what, But that's not the point of Mark's parable here. Only one point, remember? The point is that the seed will grow mysteriously. The seed will grow without outside observer intervention. So what does this tell us about the kingdom? That God will grow His kingdom to the type that is right, and He will harvest. That there is an uh, end point the growth of the kingdom. There's a ripeness to it, okay, as God grows it. But it's not something that we can perceive, it's not something that we can, in a sense, actively intervene in. It's God that's doing it. So what about us? How can we uh, then participate in this? Is this. We look today at the, the, the scenario of Christendom, of Christianity, and maybe you're discouraged. The so-called Western countries which were the forerunners of the gospel of Christ have now become so secularized that they are departing from the gospel wholesale. Even the Christians within it, sadly, right, this large-scale departure from the gospel and maybe we're discouraged. Maybe even within local context, we look at the church in Malaysia and we're just so divided and we lose heart at what God is doing. How could God's kingdom possibly prevail? And I want to encourage you here, do not be distracted by this. And I'd like to quote a hymn that though the off seems off so strong, our God is ruler yet. That God is sovereign, that God is growing His kingdom, so do not be discouraged even as you participate saying, what will my participation even amount to? God will use it. God will grow it. And that leads us into thinking in the next parable of the mustard seed, verse 30. So here's the thing. Um, People can't really agree what really Jesus said about the mustard seed, but Here's the thing, here it says that the the mustard seed is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth and some people will take it literally and say, aha, the Bible is factually incorrect. The smallest seed on earth is the black orchard seed, which is not even visible by the naked eye. Here, the mustard seeds are clearly visible. Anyone who does that is clearly missing the point, (laughs) alright? To a first century Palestinian, the mustard seed would have been the smallest, in a sense, uh, herb or garden plant they would have known. Okay, and again, another element is that the growth, the, the outcome of that seed will grow into a great tree. Another problem is that that's the best image, most accurate image I could find about how a mustard plant looks like. It's more of a bush than a tree. I know if you go Google image search on a parable of the sower, you get like images of like great trees. Actually, that's not a mustard tree. All right, just a disclaimer. But So why? I was curious, I had to dig in, why? But at the end of the day, the point of this parable is just one, and that is the, the kingdom of God has small, has small and insignificant beginnings. You see, Jesus' hearers would not have to be told twice about the greatness of God's kingdom, because that's what they were waiting for. They were waiting for a Messiah to come, kick Rome off the, the, the throne, and uh, rule the world, essentially, with the kingdom of God. That's what they were thinking of, a great grand kingdom. But what they would not have expected in this parable was that the kingdom would start with a single mustard seed. It would start with one person, 12 disciples, 120 of them in an upper room, and that that would be the church and expand to what we have now 2,000 years later. It's amazing, it it boggles the mind that that could have happened, that that the church, the early church would go on and convert the whole Roman Empire. It's amazing. And that's what this parable is illustrating, the, the small and insignificant beginning. So what about us? I'd like us to think about our own contribution and how we participate with the kingdom. It could be the person that bought the water for our coffee. The water doesn't go by itself, you know. It could be the welcome team who tirelessly, you know, make sure that everything, that the service team, people who work in the background to make our service function and be organised, people who choose the songs, people who play the songs, people who practice, who, who behind the scenes, even sometimes the kids the children who give out the welcome packs, right, and the people who give them out. Or sometimes, it could be as small as just smiling at the person next to you. Not in an evil way, come on. <laughs> but just by being nice on a Sunday. By encouraging someone who used to look kind of down. You see, the truth is that no one or nothing or no offering is too insignificant for God to use for His eternal purposes. Now, hear me rightly, this is not an excuse to give your least for God. All right? But what I'm saying is that if you're looking at yourself and looking at the kingdom and say that I can't change something so big. I look at the problems in Malaysia and the church of Malaysia and it's too big for little old me to handle. And my advice to you would be this. Taking the the last two parables together it's God that works it. We are just called to be mustard seeds in the hands of our creator to participate in his kingdom as it grows. And may I encourage you, it, it may not even be look, how it can look practically, is that if you pray for someone who does not yet know, who is not yet in the kingdom, pray for them, be a part of that work of that person's heart, when that person enters the kingdom, what has happened was an eternal seismic shift of someone's destiny in eternity. And that's one very simple way we can all start, by looking at who's not in the kingdom and striving in that regard. We come now to verse 33 to 34. Alright. So, just to close it out with two points, okay? God's kingdom in the world and the inevitable triumph of the kingdom. Here it says that in verse 34 that Jesus did not speak to them without a parable but privately to his disciples he explained everything. Now, again, we should not take this literally that Jesus didn't go like, have you eaten yet? And Jesus replied, it is like a field full of grain but no one harvests it. What? (laughs) It would be impossible to communicate, right? So, of course, this is hyperbole, right? We should not take it literally. But rather, it should show that Jesus' teaching publicly was always hidden. That God's kingdom is hidden, as I said just now. And it's only those who respond in faith, those who pay attention, those who hear, those who find Him faithful, that will gain more confidence and trust in Him, that will grow in our love for Him. And next is the inevitable triumph of the kingdom. Mark chapter 8, verses 35 would say, for whoever would save his life will lose it. And how I I, I like to teach this verse is this. If we live our lives for our own financial security, for our own financial independence, if we live our lives for the legacy of our family, if we live our lives for advancement of career, if that's all that we live for, we seek to save our life, we will lose it. Because none of those things can be carried with us beyond the grave it will all be gone. That as much as family is a good thing, it, we cannot carry them with us beyond the grave. That beyond four generations, your great-grandkids won't know who your name. That everything is temporal and it will be lost, that you'll be lost, that you'll be, you'll be lost to the dust of history. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it that if instead we spend our time, spend our resources in the building of God's kingdom, in bringing people into the kingdom, in the building up of the church, of fellow saints, what we have done, what we have just done, is we made an eternal impact that will never change, that will be unfading and that will remain forever. What are we living for? And how will we pay attention? How will we participate into this kingdom? Because God invites us to come and participate. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You, Lord, that You are at work, that You are sovereign, that You are in control. Help us, O Lord, to consider in our daily lives how we can obey You rightly, how we can receive uh, Your Word rightly, and to not be in danger of being distracted on the danger of being superficial. We pray and ask, O Lord, that you will grow your word in us. Pray and ask for your spirit to work in us so that we can love one another. Help us to carry our cross. Help us, O Lord, to live for you and to, to love you more and to love others from your love. We can only do so by your strength alone. And therefore, we ask this of you in Jesus' name. Amen.